Hello, welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm Dave Cohen. And I'm James Carey. And our special guest today is a writer and producer with decades of experience on some of the most popular and successful TV series of the last 30 years. Uh, He's written across a range of long-running dramas and soaps, including Casualty and EastEnders, but is best known as one of the creators of one of the finest comic dramas of the last... Well, ever, really, I think. Uh, Huge favourite in the Cohen and Carey households that was Mm. Life on Mars. So, hello, Ashley Farrow. Hi, guys. Because you made me sound very elderly indeed (laughs) for introduction, but thank you. Well, well, we didn't mean to, yeah. uh, but also we should mention the fact that we've got, you've also got Around the World in 80 Days uh, on, you know, uh, yeah. has literally just, just dropped. And, just finished screening. Yeah. yeah, which has been terrific. Really enjoyed that. So we'll get to that yeah. just to remind viewers that you've been extremely busy since Life on Mars. Uh, yeah. But yeah, Dave, uh, I can normally ask the first question. Uh, Dave is more organized than me. But what we always ask our guests is, I always say, when you were sitting cross-legged in front of the television, um, occasionally children had to sit nearer because they became the remote control uh, because we didn't have remote controls when we were small. Uh, at least I didn't. Uh, what were you watching? And at what point did you think, huh, someone wrote this. Maybe I could do that. Or w- w- is, did that never really cross I don't think that happened as a kid. Okay. I, mean, I grew up in a sort of new town in North Somerset where things like that didn't really happen. I don't think it was even... Um, talked about or even imagined you know but I did love I always loved television and, and the movies that I saw on television we had no cinema um but it was I remember my older brother once saying gosh I had a good script I'm thinking what does he mean by that because my, my older brother had said it I thought wow that must be so I do remember that I must have been about six or seven or eight it was only when really it was after university that I thought about script writing as as a bit, you know, I always wanted to be a writer right, right from the start. I assumed that would be a novelist, I guess, when I was in my teens, but I was the world's worst novelist. Uh, I tried journalism and I was even worse at that. Um, so it was almost a question of me finding, I think, um, you know, the, the script writing and, and television. Yeah. So, um, and what shows were those particular ones, especially comedies, but comedy dramas, and the kind of things that you now write, at what point were you thinking, oh, I'd love to write that, when you, when you were starting to write? Yeah, I mean, there was, I always loved MASH as a kid, you know, mm. um, you know without the, um, the soundtrack we had to put up with now. Um, I guess it was the Sunday night shows, like The Brothers and The Needing Line. And, um, oh, oh, God, yes, Triangle. Was, Triangle and um, yeah. what the Waltons wasn't Sunday, but shows that the whole family, literally, apart from my grumpy dad, would come and you know and, and sit on a sofa and for an hour there would be silence and it was like um, in the power of, the, of returning narratives must have stuck with me because I was um, just an astonishing thing to me and then the viewing figures were were ridiculous, weren't they? So it was that in my earliest memories and also. The school holidays were always the amazing black and white shows on in the sort of kids' hours. Like, um, there's that French version of Robinson Crusoe that I was obsessed with as a little boy. Oh, really? Oh, my God. I, you know, if I hear that thing talking now, I get a bit, a bit teary. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> I eat all that stuff, Champion the Wonder Horse. Oh, you know. When I was a kid, um, they, the BBC must have acquired very cheaply an Eastern European version of Heidi. 
um, or maybe it was the original uh, kind of TV adaptation of, of Heidi, which they kind of passed off as, I think they put it on over the summer when they knew no one was watching. Yeah. Um, and there was another one called Silas, I think as well. Um, but yeah, but in, when you're a kid and in, in those days, there's no internet and all that kind of stuff. You just sort of uh watching watching tv i wasn't that far away from you probably i was um I, i'm just from near Froome, uh which oh, is right. in north somerset uh so you were up i was in a place called nailsy nailsworth nailsy 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 yes yeah you're not that far away from um where the sort of the pratchett and gaiman kind of bunch started yeah. out as well i mean that was there was a north somerset thing going on there but oh, bridgewater was... they were bridgewater Ah, uh, this was yeah, when I, in, I was in uh, Bristol in the uh, late seventies and early eighties, and we oh, started right. a we started a magazine uh, called Venue, and um, they, um, this this gang of extremely funny people all turned up from Bridgewater, and, and <laughs> they had uh, there was a whole Bridgewater punk scene, and they they created all this stuff, and they were, they, they yeah, and the bridge, my dad's business was in Bridgewater, so I know. Yeah. Quite well. Um, well, it yeah. seems that must be ley lines going yeah. through the ritual, it? Comedy. I just felt um, I had no idea that anyone else was even thinking yeah. about yeah. this yeah. stuff. Yeah. How would you? I remember, you know, I left. So I went to school in Bristol. I left to go to university in 78, 79, I think. But I do remember that, you know. Oh, right. Okay. I, well, I, I just thought, you know, no, there's not enough love for Bridgewater uh, in the world. Oh. I thought I should uh, mention that. And, no, sadly, uh, they uh, no longer have the cellophane factory, so it doesn't smell... Yeah. As appalling as it used to, yeah. but it's it's interesting because we we ask this question all the people that are uh, guests and and we're always talking about comedy shows and you talk about this these shows it's reminded me of that yeah that incredible uh, drama of shows like um, the one Champion the Wonder Horse you mentioned there and and uh, I remember Bonanza as well. Bonanza, um, there was a show called Alias Smith and Jones. Uh, which was kind of, I mean, alas, Smith and Jones was only called that because yeah. there was a show called Alias Smith and Jones. True. But all this really super formulaic stuff, wasn't it? But it was just great. Couldn't get enough of it. Yeah, and that original yeah. Batman and Robin show, and that was, you know, yeah. it was just, um, yeah, so much of that, of that children's television then was made, you know, especially America just quite, had quite decent budgets, didn't they? It was, you know, shot yeah. film. So how did you then, so what was your first paid writing gig that was on TV, or as it were, or that was meant to be for TV? Well, so I was at university reading English, thinking, you know, what am I going to, I was actually revising for my finals, or sort of revising, I think, what am I going to do next? And um, as I revised, I used to listen to the plays on Radio 4, and there was a, there was a slot called um, 30 Minute Theatre, and I thought, I'm sure I could. I'm going to give that a crack. I'd, I'd never seen a script. You couldn't go online then and see what a script looked like. So I had a bit of a guess of what they might be like. And I wrote this 30-minute theatre. You know, you meant to write about what you know about. I didn't do that at all. I wrote about two businessmen travelling down through Italy to pick up two hitchhikers. I'd never been to Italy or Mecca business, man. Um, sent it off to the BBC and I, I sort of forgot about it. And being the BBC back took months. But... Eventually, this embossed BBC envelope came back to you. We liked your play, and um, here's £350, and there you go. And I was... Um, Whoa! I was gobsmacked. Hey, that you could, something that was so fun to do, you could get paid for doing it. So then, my then-girlfriend at the time was, was reading um, 
Sight and Sound, the movie magazine, and in the back was an advert for the National Film School, as it was called in those days. Um, and I thought, what the heck, I've nothing else to do. I might as well give it a crack. So I sent them my radio play and I quickly wrote a couple of visual short stories because I knew they would, I knew there were pictures involved. Um, and I was so relaxed at the interview because I'd never heard of the place. Um, so some of them, I could see some of the other students shaking, you know, because they were so important to them. I was like, yeah, I do. And I think because I was so laid back. Um, anyway, I got in to the film school. And that, so, so I did my first degree um, and then went there. Well, it was meant to be for three years. I think I was there for seven. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, because it was in those days, it had a very, had its original Colin Young, who died recently, founder. And it had a very sort of hippie, you know, you do what you do when you have to do it, man. And kind of, which meant I didn't go in there for about a year once. I think I was just, um, yeah, sleeping and drinking mostly. Um, but it was there that I thought, wow. And, this is really exciting, and you know, to think, and um, and that's why we really watched a lot of films and stuff. I really got the bug about screenwriting, but it was—I yeah. sort of fell into it a little bit. But I think I like the idea that it took you seven years rather than three years because I mean you, you you're right to sort of throw throw aspersions on the younger you as I do on the younger me. But actually, what you were doing in those seven years was sort of living life. Um, yeah. so that you've got something to write about as well. I think there's a bit of a, if you start too soon, and one of my bits of advice I give to young sitcom writers when they ask me for advice, my advice is be older, uh, which is, of course, well, never there is been a, used. a lot of truth in that. And I think, so I went there straight up to university. So I think I was 23, 22, 23. It's quite young to be at a place like that. I didn't really appreciate it looking back now. And I was too young. In some ways, I, you know, we writers talk about that voice, whatever that, that is. I definitely didn't have one. And I was quite a shy boy, really. And I was sort of writing, the directors would, would come to me with ideas and I would help them write their scripts. And it was the head of the script. I wasn't very happy though in the early years. And I thought, I don't think this is for me. I don't care how prestigious it is. I'm a bit bored. And the head of script, I think saw this happening to me and um, she said, look, write about, she, she did this thing, which I've never done before or since, but it sort of changed my life. That she said for a week or two weeks, when you get up in the morning, go straight to your desk. Don't turn on the radio, don't make a coffee, don't do, just go straight to your desk, pick up a pen and write anything that comes into your head. It could be last night's dreams, it could be stuff you remember from your past or ideas. Absolutely anything. The deal was that nobody read it apart from me and her. So it sort of huh. it took the pressure of having to impress your student friends. And suddenly, and then we sat on her, in her office and had all these bits of writing on her floor. And she said, well, that character there, that girl that you write about, is really interesting. I was like, yeah, she was sort of my first lover. You know, in growing up in Somerset, she was a slightly strange girl who was, who was into um, Supernatural and... There was a story over there that was a true story about a, um, a bomber that they found in the Somerset levels. And when they dragged it out, yeah, in the 70s, I think, the skeleton pilot was still at the cockpit of a wall. So I went away and in about three days, I wrote what became my graduation film, Water's Edge. And that one did, that was completely about my, my life, really. And that, um, 
That did really well. I mean, I, I, so I graduated on it, as I say, got a BAFTA nomination, got me an agent. Um, so then I thought, oh, yeah, this is easy. This is a lovely, this is going to be a nice life. And then, yeah, then it all went a bit quiet for another decade. But um, that was my process of, of thinking, wow, that your own life, the details of your own, although you think you haven't had a life, are, of course, as fascinating as anybody else's. And I, I took that film, but, you know, very Somerset piece of work. I took that around, shot outside for him, in fact, wow. on Orchard Lee Estate. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's really close to where I was brought up. I took that film to Spain and America, and the audiences laughed because... So I thought well, that's too parochial. No one's good, but they did. And, you know, and years later, people said the same thing about Life on Mars. You know, no one is so parochial. Manchester in the 70s. But it's travelled all over the world. So my bit of advice to writers who ask me is um, don't be embarrassed about your own life. This infrastructure and emotions of... Yeah. Something we've been talking about a bit on on the sitcom and with with uh, sitcom geeks and and with our sort of Patreon members as well is about being very specific and um, the fact that your your story is very personal and it's very kind of tied into that very small area. <coughs> I think that's what I mean. It makes it authentic. Yeah. So although I present it to my tutors, I was sort of note proof because I knew I knew that world much better than they did. I knew how those people spoke and what their value systems were. I knew what it looked like. And it gives you a weird sort of confidence writing about, at the start of your career, I think, writing about something that only you in the world yeah. can write about. Yeah. But again, you've sort of uh, said that thing where um, we spoke to Danny Peake uh, not long ago, who writes Not Going Out mm. and a whole bunch of things. He won a Radio Times competition when he was 18 with a sitcom. And then nothing happened for ten years, and then he won another competition, and then and then nothing happened for two or three years. Or and so, but what's interesting is the fact that you said, "Oh, oh this is easy," but actually you've just said for, for seven years at film school you actually found it really hard to do anything, and then this little thing unlocked it, and then you did that, and then it went quiet again. And it went quiet. So what happened? So I graduated, and I got a couple of um, script commissions. I mean, really, you know, low budget. BFI film in Zimbabwe and a BBC surfing sort of two or three part, I think it was set in Newquay in Cornwall. And, and but they didn't get made. As you know, now now I know most things don't get made. And then suddenly you're not the hot kid at film school anymore. There's you know, been two or three years. Then the phone stopped ringing. And then I was, you know, I was living in London, back on the doll, and my friends. Um, was starting to, you know, buy flats and buy cars. And I was living, I was as a skint at 28, 29. I've never been in my life. And I was, and even my mum and dad who had been so supportive of me were starting to say, you know, is it time <laughs> you thought about yeah. doing something else? And I remember thinking, it probably is. Because I felt, I felt a bit useless, really. I felt, if I died tomorrow, I hope a few of my friends wouldn't care, but, the world and the country wouldn't give a toss because I contributed nothing to it. And I was at that stage, and when I'm getting one of those important moments, you don't think it's important, just, I'm just having a beer with a, with a friend, which he had to pay for, obviously. Um, <laughs> and he was directing out at EastEnders at Elstree, and he said, Look, you're a better writer than, the, than these things. And 
Send, send them your work. And even then, in my poverty, in my snobbery, I was like, he's send us, really. And he said, actually, you cannot even afford the bus fare home, mate. You know, uh, yeah. So, again, that, I thought, yeah, what, what's to lose? So I sent them my stuff. And an interesting thing that they liked was one of those commissioned scripts that never got made. So nothing's ever wasted, I think, if you're a writer. Mm. That got me one episode. It was like a test episode. Um, and I kind of knew then that that was, that was my chance. If I blew it, if I couldn't, here I go again, if I couldn't even write an episode of a British sick, uh, so then maybe, yeah. you know, it's time to start teaching English in Istanbul or something, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, thankfully they liked my script and that really. And about, I, So I was, I'd given myself until I was 30. And okay. I was a couple of months away from 30 when they commissioned these tenders. So well, I had a fantastic start. But my 20s were real. As ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, and it's a whole cluster of things, isn't it? It's like, it's confidence or lack of, or I was never very good at um, pushing the door open. Now I look back a couple of times, it was slightly ajar, but I was too shy. I don't know what I was too. Yeah. And what, what would you say to the person who's now currently thinking, you know, is there, I mean, I think Holby, is Holby finishing? I I, I can't remember if I'm It is, isn't it? Not, I but, think it is, yeah. But there'll, there'll be something else. And there are, you know, you can write doctors or whatever it is. But for the writer who is considering, oh, do I have to do that? Am I writing doctors? Am I going to apply for the EastEnders scheme to write a show that's watched by 8 million people? Uh, am I, you know... Uh, I mean, you can already tell what I think, but what would you say to people in, in that position? And maybe what did you learn from it? I mean, I mean, the world has changed a little bit. I think there are more, there are more options now. You know, there's, mm. you know, I see young writers with, you know, with a couple of plays, stage plays, but I'm getting Netflix shows in the wall. It wasn't like that when I started, but I learned loads from, from writing these things. I did for three years. Um, and I learned about story lining and I just learned to be a professional writer I think and, and also you spend a lot of time with other writers which I've never done until I love the company of writers you know and um, and I made really good friends there that are still my friends today and we'll get on to life on Mars but my co-creators we all met on EastEnders you know and John York was my junior script editor and he, you know so all these people that grew up with me and branched out into the um industry they were for me they were massively important yeah yeah, yeah. and it's, it's interesting as well that um you mentioned those early those um sunday night shows uh like the brothers and and uh and, and i think what what i what i think about those sorts of shows is that they they obviously they were kind of incredibly uh you know you had to make a lot of tv over a very small period of time you could you got a sense of that kind of you know, slightly, I wouldn't say cheap looking, but I mean the, the important thing was that it, it, the important thing was the the characters yeah. and the stories. Um, mm. And yeah, I guess exactly. you have a similar kind of rigorous discipline when you're doing a show like EastEnders. So and it was I really mean, hard work. That yeah. kind of thing struck me. It surprised me. I thought, shit, this is you know you work really hard on those shows. I mean, Sunday afternoons I'd get calls from script editors. You know, we'd lost a location or an actress. You know, there was. Uh, everyone on that show. I thought when I went there for my first meeting that it was going to be full of slightly cynical Oxbridge types making sort of fodder for the masses. And it wasn't like that. 
at all. There were people would argue about characters and chuck things, and it was it was intense actually, is what it was. Although we had a bloody good laugh as well. Um, mm. So that was yeah, like, like I said, for me, really important. Now, now, if it was, I would still say if you can get if you can get in a place like that, you can learn an awful lot. Maybe three years looking back was a little bit too long. Um, yeah, but I well, think. But yeah, you were on the point of packing it in. So three years is probably what you needed just to get you back, back in the game. It got my confidence. You know? I mean, I got my credit yeah. on telly, which sounds ridiculous, yeah. but all for ten years you've been telling people you're a scriptwriter. They go, "Well, I've seen of you." Think, well, unless you've been to a very obscure um, Venetian film yeah. festival, student film, but you haven't seen anything. In my, and then, but then all of a sudden your name is, you know, in those days, I can't remember, eighteen million people probably watched it. Huge. And you'd hear people on the bus talking about it the next day. Then, well, and you got paid. Let's let's not be shy about the other I yeah. earning. I went from being on the doll yeah. to earning that first year. I think forty grand. Yeah, which, not bad. You know, not yeah. more than you know. It's um, and it, and it's and it's you think, well, I am, and then I can pay taxes. And I think, well, I am. I'm not a completely useless <laughs> sponge on my own country. Hope you're enjoying part one of our interview with Ashley Farrow. If you want part two right now, join us on Patreon where you get first access to all our episodes when they're recorded, plus podcasts in which we review the first 10 pages of our Patreon scripts and access to our Discord server and a whole lot else besides. Google Sitcom Geeks Patreon and you'll find us. And if you join us at the top level, you get access to our monthly masterclass webinar in which Dave and I help you build your comedy writing career. This coming Monday, Monday the 13th of June, Dave has a workshop lined up on writing for topical shows and he snagged some Breaking the News producers to come along and help us think that through. So join us for that on Monday the 13th of June, Google Sitcom Geeks Patreon. And you can also go on uh, Dave and Dan's topical course. Dan Swerritt has successfully been writing topical comedy for a few years and has plenty of experience to share. And of course, Dave's been doing this for ages. He's worked on shows like Have I Got News For You and plenty more. So you're really learning from the best. If you want to get onto that course, move quickly. Email funnyup02 at gmail.com. funnyup02 at gmail.com. And very soon, I'll be launching my 12-lesson video sitcom writing course that tells you everything you need to know in order to help you write that sitcom pilot script that you can actually be proud of. Find out more by going to my blog, sitcomgeek.blogspot.com, or just Google Sitcom Geek, singular, and you'll find it. Right, back to our conversation with Ashley Farrow, who is still stuck in Albert Square. Uh, EastEnders, I don't know what it's like now. I get the sense not so much. But EastEnders was quite funny because uh, mm. I, I didn't watch it, but my parents did. And I, I used to be stuck at home quite often on a Sunday afternoon when the omnibus was yeah. on. And so I was exposed to it and found myself sort of ending up watching it and just thinking, this is actually quite funny. And I know Corey's always had a reputation for being funny, especially if you're if you're from the north of England. You, you see stuff that us in the south don't necessarily spot. But... EastEnders was was funny, wasn't it? I think it I mean, was. was. I think it had a, really a slightly unfair reputation for being a sort of gloomathon because it was it was very funny, quite dark the human. But then the writers, you know, Tony Jordan, these were funny guys. You know, it was. Um, uh, and like I said, we laughed a lot. So we'd go away for these storyline weekends. It's like 
grotty hotel in Watford. And um, we had a, you know, you can imagine what a bunch of writers let loose in a, in a hotel bar, but we um, we laughed and laughed and laughed. And I think, I think some of that permeated into the scripts eventually. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the, the process? Because I, I kind of, um, I, I'm slightly aware of it, <clears throat> knowing a little bit about the, um, knowing about the process of writing like casualty but you've got all these you've got all these kind of different things going on haven't you, you you've got a kind of whole you've got a, a, a like a year somebody is in charge of the year and then yes. somebody's in charge of three months and then and then you're you know you're writing an episode and there's like five other kind of people saying oh you've got to get this in and that and this that in. How, yeah. how much autonomy did you ha- do you have on an eastenders script um in my day, it was known as the sort of the, the writer's years, and it was very, they let the writers have a lot more input than I believe that they have another. Because we were only doing two episodes a week at that time, which at the time seemed like bloody uh, quite enough, thank you. And now, yeah. now I think it's four or five, isn't it? So there, I mean, we never had read through or anything like that. It was too quick for that. But in my day, and I think every time an exec comes in, it slightly changes, but we had, each writer, I think for, you were given like about a seven or eight page prose document and you had to get all that stuff in your episode. But it wasn't structured for you. It'd be like, this is the Arthur paragraph and this is the Laundrette paragraph. You know, and you had to, as a writer, structure it. And, um, so you, didn't, you, didn't, you had almost no input in storage terms, but you had a lot of input in terms of how that, episode shapes and the, and the tone of it um and then that treatment would get bashed around a couple of times and when everyone was happy then you'd go to script so it's a strange <clears throat> it's a strange process in the sense that you're, you are given most yeah. of it, but it's very you can still see right the good writers shine yeah even, even well, it's through that such, it's such a good place to learn though isn't it because i really feel for if you're writing a pilot sitcom script now, you've got to technically execute everything and come up with an absolute winner of an idea that could actually be a show. And you've got to do the whole thing from a standing start, um, you know, learning your craft and coming up with a show. And so in the in the old in America, at least where they have writers rooms for sitcoms, you might be in a writers room for two, three, four, five, six years before they'll let you pitch a new show. Um, and you got the experience. So the, how to how to get a twenty five you know minute episode of a sitcom up and running? You've now cracked that, and now you get to do the thing about okay. So let let's start a brand new show from scratch. What what, what is it about? How's it going to work? All that kind of stuff. And so it's hard to get that in the UK because we don't have team written sitcoms. But you know when when a whole lot of stuff is given to you, you're able just to focus on the technical scene by scene what happens we need yeah. the story we go from here to here it's it's such a great track yeah, and it's, isn't it? i mean technically it's probably the hardest thing i've ever had to write because you don't have the advantage of budget you know so it's a very prescribed way of writing really and that you know you'll be you'll be given your storyline and there's over the way i don't know dot cotton is lot only which means that you can only film on, film on the lot and the Mitchell brothers are studio only. They, okay, but I've got to see them in the boat, both in. And they go, well, that's, you know, that's down. So you think, well, how am I going to get someone shouting through out of a window? You know, that, and, you, and you learn technically. Um, 
And there was, I always remember there was a moment in my early days where I had to, I had a scene where Arthur is, um, he's learning to drive and he, he hits a lamppost, you know. Um, not exactly Citizen Kane, but that was what I had to do. So I wrote the scene and they went, hmm, we can't afford that. Because film school, they, they always taught us, you know, um, show, don't tell. But he said as it was tell, don't show. So it was, uh, next, I rewrote it because Arthur said that goes in the pub, we're never going to guess what happened to me. I only went to a lamppost. You think, so you have to technically, and when I left EastEnders and left that kind of writing, I had to unlearn some stuff. Yeah. Go back to what I'd originally been taught about, you know, structuring a more like a movie thing with a with a protagonist and um yeah because that it can it can teach you slightly lazy habits or cutting away yeah letting the yeah, cut yeah. do too much work really yeah once you start getting good at assembling you're just sort of you're, yeah i can imagine you do need to move on so you 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 escaped uh you yeah. dug your tunnel yeah. uh with with a couple of friends no i went out i, I went i kind of um i could just see I was going to stay there too long. It was too. It was too pleasant. You know, you got paid a lot of money. You had a really good time with great people. You didn't get reviewed. So as a writer, you didn't get your head kicked in in the Daily Mail, which is, you know, it's not. And it was. And it was on. It was on. And you can't. You can't beat the fact that it's on. Uh, it's probably then the biggest show on British television. Yeah. What am I? But I, I really wanted to see what else I could do. So I, I had nothing to go to. Um, foolishly, but I just left. And um, but I, I had some savings. I knew I had a year, probably had eight months to a year. Um, and I, I think what happened is I couldn't get arrested on the bill. So, the, excuse the pun, they were like, they had this weird thing where you had to, you came up with the storyline free. And they're going, no, we've done people exposing themselves. And you know, so um, couldn't get a job there. And then, but the producer of East End went to casualty. And she said, right. will you come in? The show. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was, as you know, sort of halfway house between a soap and a, an original work. And you were given the serial stuff, but you could bring two or three guest stories to the episode. So I had a lovely time there too. Great. I love that you called it a halfway house. It really does sound like you're getting out of prison <laughs> uh, and being, being released back into the community. Yeah. So you were, you were a casualty for how long? A couple of years, I think. I, I, okay. I wrote four or five episodes. Of, okay, it's a long yeah. time ago now. But um, and um, and then in those days, slightly different now. But there was a very distinct sort of career ladder. So you went from multicam tape to film, and films are ooh, it's expensive and glossy. And I had an interview for Silent Witness, the first ever season of Silent Witness, and that was film. And my agent let me be known this is a big step up. And the producer was a bit grumpy. And he actually said to me, you know, I don't not really look for soap writers, but the script editor, um, a woman called Vicky Featherston, had read some of my other scripts and put me forward. So it was a bit of a battle, but I, I got the gig writing that first series of um, Silent Witness. And she... Again, like the story of all our careers, I suspect it's like a stone in a pond. She, she now runs the Royal Court, but um, after she left Sunderland, she went to ITV and she went to a wedding up in West Yorkshire and, and on her table, she sat with these district nurses 
And she said, I think there's this series up there, really, the district nurses in Yorkshire, really. And she said, well, look, come, come, come with me for, for a day. And so I went up there on the train with her and we met these district nurses. And of course, naively, I said, have you got any stories? And they went, no, 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 no stories. Oh, okay, I'll go back then. But waiting for the train, I had a couple of beers with them. And of course, they told me fantastic stories, you know, emotional ones, funny ones. And they themselves were such big characters. And they lived in a small town outside Huddersfield. And it had a sense, I was living in Islington at the time where there was no community whatsoever. And it was very attractive. This sort of Walton-esque world. And on the train going home, I just got my pan out. And I think by the time I got to King's Cross, I'd basically come up with the idea for where, where the heart is, um, you know, which ran on ITV for 10 years. So it was all, it's all about those connections you make on your first jobs, really. I'm curious to know when one is, uh, for want of a better word, a jobbing uh, writer on, on shows like EastEnders yeah. and Casualty. But I'm presuming that all the writers on all the shows are all kind of, you know, dreaming of their getting their own shows made. And how... I think, how... I think most of them start that way. I mean, now, I mean, I was on EastEnders... Wow. I think my, that first episode I was talking about was 1990. And there are still writers now writing EastEnders that were there then. Whoa. Hmm. Okay. And some of them use it as a... Oh, and they obviously love the show. But then maybe they'll write a novel a year or they'll write a theatre piece. Um, but I think they, they, if they had ideas of getting their own shows off the ground, they'd probably long gone. And there was a tremendous snobbery back then too about, which I think is gone, I hope it's gone, that once you're in that pigeonhole, it was quite hard to get out. Um, and, the, and the BBC, the people at EastEnders would never tell anyone about you because they wanted to keep you. If you're any good, they wanted to keep you for as long as possible. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, you had to be careful they didn't stay in a place too long, I think. So running, running where the heart is, I mean, in a, way, in a sense, you were essentially running your own show by this point and- Yeah, I wouldn't say I was running writers? it, but I was certainly the lead writer on it. So the first season I wrote all of, all of them. Okay. So I think, I think it's six or eight, I can remember, but I was so bursting to go. I mean, you know, spent so much of, of my career trying to get in the business, they're in the business writing sort of other people's material. Um, so I, they, it just came pouring out of me, that stuff. Um, and but that, but once you have had it, and, and it did very well, it was a successful show right from the start. So suddenly that could change everything. So instead of me phoning people, people start to phone me. And then you realise I'm in a very, I'm suddenly in a very lucky place where, um, yeah, it's, and, but it was, again, a really happy time. And we had um, incredible writers on, on that show. Nidrick um, Santa, who was, was my script editor, who um, ended up at QDOT, so I think he, he He's running Britbox International now. So all those people you meet um, eventually end up somewhere else. And um, yeah, and my, my script editor probably was this woman, Vicky Featherstone. Then her sister, Jane Featherstone, who was working in the next room doing Touching Evil. Um, and of course, Jane went on to, to go to Kudos and Kudos made Life on Mars. So 
It's yeah. um, from the outside, it must look like a little club, but it's not really. It's just a cluster of people that you've met along the way that you well, like. It's just yeah, but it's it's to be expected, isn't it? I mean, it's not as if you all happen to go to the same university no, or that you all grew up in the same street or anything like that. It's like you met working and this is how relationships are made. You And you also you trust each other, isn't it? There's a certain element yeah, of... It's, it's affection and trust. Because yeah. you have to, and I learned like that on EastEnders, you have to like and admire the people in the room with you. Because if you... Yeah. And I hear some horror stories about those American writers' rooms, but the ones I've been have always been... The, the Edith's always were where there were a few bad apples and we got rid of them. But yeah. it has to be a place where you can fall on your face hmm. and, and come up with a ridiculous idea that your mates laugh at. And you can't yeah. take it personally. But so often you'd come up with something, they'd all laugh and they'd say, yeah, but that, I do like that little bit. And if we took that little bit with his bit that he pitched earlier, and then you think, oh, yeah. Then you've got this yeah. sort of dialectic of ideas, and then and then you're off. And I've always loved working with writers in those rooms. Probably my favourite bit of the process. It is the most fun, isn't it? Because it is. you, you you don't have to write it yet. No. You can still it's all still out there, isn't yeah. it? It's up in the air. No so one's budgeted just... it and tell you where you can't do that. <laughs> yes, you. Um, yeah, you really. You really can have that train going across uh, the ravine yeah. um, before you figure out how the hell are we going yeah. to film that, which, of course, you did in Randwell. Yeah, we did have a train going over a ravine. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. No, I just thought, how have they done that? Because, you know, the, they don't have Amazon money. You know, I've just been hearing about how much money Amazon Prime is spending on Lord of the Rings. And it's 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 half a billion. You know, it's just it's an absurd <laughs> amount of money. Yeah. But actually, it's that. But having learnt your craft in EastEnders, as it were, you know that every single problem can be fixed. It doesn't. It's like, oh, we can't get the hot air balloon. Well, again, in your case, you can. But how is that? How how can we have a hot air balloon? Yeah, and I learned all that what, at film school and on EastEnders that you just you use your imagination to get out of a yeah. tight squeeze. And 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 I. You know, you talk about 80 days, but we have massive budget constraints on 80 days. And um, I pride myself on being a writer now because of my background. I can sit in a room with, I don't know, the guys doing the CGI or the designer, and they've got their heads in their hand because they've just lost a million quid. And I think, yeah, what if we did this? And they go, they look at me, can we do that? Yeah, we can do anything we want. We're making, we're making stuff. So, for instance, the end, of that, the end of episode one of 80 days, they've gone on, they've got onto the balloon and it was um it was this is how i originally scripted it and it, it started to, to rise up they had to cut slash the ropes and then we saw it smash through the glass ceiling yeah. of this factory where this french guy made it and then it sailed off across paris and then we were in pre-production it was clear we, there was no way in the world we could afford that and everyone's a bit depressed because everyone's you know the crew they're very excited about that that stuff is for this their job. And I said, well, look, what if we just, when they run in, we just play on their faces, what they see. And we just see David took the wonder in David Tennant's face. And you think, well, it doesn't cost anything, but it's just got a brilliant actor. Although David Tennant's face isn't that cheap. I don't no, know. that's true. No. <laughs> <laughs> but frankly, you've paid for that. And frankly, that's who we're looking at. I mean, it's just... He's absolute, he's dynamite in that show. Oh, he's amazing and, in it. Yeah. And you just so want him to win because he's, you know, he's clearly been 
booted in the nuts in his own elite sort of way, you know, being called a coward and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's, it's like, it's just remembering that it's a story. Yeah, it's um, a story. And the audience doesn't know you've cut that stuff. In the end, it's French soldiers <laughs> looking up. Yeah. Thinking, oh, my God, you don't see what they're looking at. They didn't redraft for. <laughs> <laughs> and then you cut to the, you're in the inside of that the balloon. Yeah. We couldn't afford the CGI shot of Paris, but then you get anything, they're, they can be a bit naff, those CGI. We know they're CGI, yeah. but they can possibly be anything else. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but all that, use as a writer, using your imagination to get yourself out. I, that, that bit I do enjoy, actually. I find that quite um, challenging and interesting. We're going to leave that there. We're going to come back to it next time. But if you really can't wait, join us on Patreon and you can hear the rest of that interview straight away. Don't forget, there's that masterclass on Monday, the 13th of June about topical writing. That's again for masterclass Patreon members. Dan and Dave, topical course, email funnyup02 at gmail.com. And my 12 lesson video sitcom writing course is launching soon. Go to sitcomgeek.blogspot.com. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to the British Comedy Guide who hosts this podcast. And we'll speak to you next time. Bye.